As you're finding your seat, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Haggai. If you're anything like me right now, you're a little worried because you don't know where Haggai is, but you want to seem really smart to the people beside you. And so you're trying to figure out how to find it. So let me tell you, Haggai's the third last book of the Old Testament. Now let me do even one better. If you get nothing from this sermon, I want to give you at least something, okay? So I'm going to give you a little rhyme. Someone told me a little rhyme for the last four books of the Old Testament. And one of the best things you can do is when a song gets stuck in your head, give it to other people so it can get stuck in their head for the rest of the week. So here's how you can memorize the last four books of the Old Testament. Are you ready for it? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Let's all say it together. You ready? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Keep saying it, droning it in your head. I was told that at the beginning of this week. I said, there's no way I'm going to use it. But every day, it kept droning in my head. And so I said, I got to pass this off just to get it off my shoulders. Three and a half weeks ago, now my wife and I uh, welcomed our baby daughter into this world. And as is often the case, as the father, when the second comes, you get to spend a ton of time with the first. And so I just had such a blessing hanging out with my oldest daughter, Mia. And Mia's just over two years old. And so we find ourselves entering the stage that many of you know about. It's the stage of constantly repeating yourself. And some of you, I'm seeing from your faces, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because once, once the kids multiply, it's just multiplied repetition, isn't it? That's what I'm learning as we have our second. Well, I found myself having to tell Mia something over and over and over again. I found myself having to tell Mia what time it is. Now, I'm not talking about the time of the day. I'm talking about uh, specifically what time it is for her to be doing what she needs to be doing. So I find myself saying things like, it's not playtime, it's food time. I find myself saying things, it's not run around the yard naked time, it's bedtime. And I do this constantly because I realize as a parent, it's my job to at times readjust her priorities and steer them towards what's right. And so I tell her what it's time for. Now, there are also other things that I, it's always time for. I tell my daughter, it's always hug data time. Any time of the day, it's hug data time. But it's also always listen to mama and data time. See, there are, there are specific things I'm showing her that it's always time to do. And so I'm constantly, if she's forgetting, and I'm constantly drawing her attention back to what it's time for. Now, what Haggai wants to do for us This morning, what the Lord wants to do for us this morning as he speaks to us through his word is this. He wants to tell us it's time. Now, we know relatively little about the prophet Haggai, but we do know that in the history of God's people, Haggai enters the scene at a very specific point in time with a very specific message, and his message is, it's time. Now, for us, in this very moment, God wants to burst into the scene of life that you're at right now, and he wants to declare this message through his word. It's time. And the time he declares is this. Through Haggai, he says this. It's time to pursue my presence. It's time to pursue the presence of the Lord. Haggai comes to the nation of Israel with this very specific message. Pursue the presence of the Lord. Now, the historical scene in which Haggai is written is actually told in the first five chapters of the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 1, we're told that the Persian emperor Cyrus is making a decree that a group of exiles led by Zerubbabel can return to Judah. Seventy years prior to this, the glory of God had departed the temple where Israel worshipped, and later the temple was destroyed. So returning to Judah meant something really important for Israel. That meant that they were back in God's land and they could build God's temple. And that was very significant because throughout the history of God's people, God's temple always meant he was present with them. It meant they could rebuild the temple. It meant that the presence of God could be restored to them. And so these exiles, they go back to Judah, and God stirs up their spirit to start rebuilding the temple. And what they're declaring is this, God, I want you to be present with me. 
The nation of Israel is declaring this, God, we need your presence among us. So we're going to start building the house of the Lord, the place where the Lord dwells. Because our greatest need is your presence among us. And so they get to work and they start laying the foundation, but it's not easy. And Ezra chapter 4 tells us about some serious persecution that they face from their enemies. And by the end of chapter 4, we find that the work on the temple has altogether stopped for 15 years. It's this scene that Haggai enters with the message, it's time. It's time. He says it's time to pursue the presence of the Lord. And the scene that Haggai walks into, it's, it's bleak. See, when you stop pursuing the presence of the Lord, you start busying yourself elsewhere. You start doing the things that you think will give you joy, but you never find satisfaction. When you stop pursuing the presence of the Lord, satisfaction feels like you're trying to grip onto sand, but it just keeps slipping through your fingers. And Haggai comes with this important message for us this morning, the work that God wants to do for us this morning, to show us how to pursue the presence of the Lord. So we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1 this week. And I want you to see in Haggai chapter 1, three steps to pursuing the presence of the Lord. And the first step is this, realize that the time is now. Realize that the time is now. Now in the first verse of the first chapter of Haggai, The word of God reads this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now first Haggai gives us some historical setting. Remember, this setting's important because Haggai comes at a very specific time with a very specific message. And what we discover is for 15 years almost, Haggai gives us the exact date on the calendar. For 15 years, the rebuilding of the temple had ceased. And so God comes with Haggai, and God has a word specifically for two leaders, but ultimately he's going to tell all of the people of Israel what needs to happen. Now, I want you to notice in the first verse there that it wasn't just any word that was being spoken. This was the word of the Lord that came to Haggai. Now, you need to understand the significance of what God is doing for his people. The people of God, they were wasting their time. Instead of pursuing the presence of the Lord, instead of pursuing what would delight the Lord, instead of pursuing what would give the Lord pleasure, they were pursuing their own pleasure. They were pursuing their own projects. God told them to build the temple, but they were building their own houses. They were disobeying God. And so God, in his grace, what he does is he sends a man, he sends a prophet who doesn't just come with a good opinion. Haggai doesn't just come and say, hey, I thought of something that might be really profitable for you. Here, I got some graphs. I I laid out a spreadsheet. I got a, he was an Excel guy, so I made an Excel document. Here you go. You got to check this out. This could be really good for you. Haggai also didn't come like a persuasive debater. He wasn't coming and, and setting up debates and saying, hey, I got a good idea. Try and prove me wrong. When Haggai came, he came with the word of the Lord. See, Haggai's message was divine. You see God's grace for his people. You see, it's God's will that his people live in his presence. And it's God's love that he will actively chase those who are not actively pursuing him. He'll stop them dead in in their tracks with this message. It's time to return. It's time to drop what you're doing and to return to my presence. Now, I want you to understand how amazing the application for us is. Because what God did for Israel is God sent a man who came with the inspired voice, the inspired message of God. But what God is doing for you this morning is even more amazing because those words were written down. And when they were written down, they were perfect in their writing. And they were preserved for thousands of years so that this very morning we could open up God's book and we could look at the words that Haggai wrote 
And we could know that just as God came to them at that time and said, it's time to pursue my presence, though also God this very morning is stopping you in your tracks to say, take a breath, slow your life down, think for a moment, think about the fact that you need me. Realize that the time is now. Realize that it's time to pursue my presence. And so heart check. Heart check right now. We're looking inside. How ready are you to listen? God's speaking. God's speaking, not because I'm a great speaker or anything, but because his word is open. And when we speak from his word, we hear God's voice. And so are you ready to hear the word of the Lord? God has stopped each of us this morning. And so for the people of Israel, he makes the word of God go forth, and they're made aware of this issue. The issue is that they're not rebuilding the house of the Lord. Haggai's ultimate concern is for the temple. Now, the temple was significant because this is the place where God dwelled. This was the house of the Lord, Haggai says. Now, a house, it's uh, imagery, and it suggests the, the temple, and it's got walls and a roof, and it's the same word that Haggai uses to speak about people's personal homes. And the idea is that this is where God dwells. This is the place that God's presence is. Therefore, in order for Haggai to say that the people don't have time to build the house of the Lord, as he does in verse 2 when he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. When Haggai says that, what he's saying is, what you're ultimately saying, Israel, is that you don't have time for the presence of the Lord. What you're ultimately saying is, the need for God's presence isn't pressing enough for me to make it a priority right now. And so for Israel to refuse to build the house meant that they didn't care whether or not the presence of the Lord was with them. This was living proof. You're building your homes while the house of the Lord is in shambles. Now, the consequences of having the wrong priorities is grave. And so when the Lord speaks, I want you to notice in verse 2, put your eyes on the text and notice what he says about the people. He refers to the people as these people. Now, this kind of reminds me of what you do when you're in the superstore and your kid's like, well, being themselves, really, and they're being disobedient, and, and you say, uh, you, you pretend like you don't know whose kid that is, and you just walk down a different aisle, uh, I don't know who that is. I don't do that with my kid a lot, but my parents did that with me a lot. <laughs> See, when you don't pursue the presence of God, you aren't living as a child of God. And this is serious. Not pursuing the presence of God changes the status of our relationship with God. We move from my child to this child. We see this in the garden, don't we? When God creates Adam and Eve, they are engrossed in the pursuit of the presence of the Lord. The Bible says that Adam and Eve, they, they walked in the garden with God. And they talked audibly with God. And we get this picture of man living in living, real fellowship with God, delighting in the presence, creature and creator, delighting in one another. But what happens when Sin enters into Adam's heart. All of a sudden, that relationship is broken. And in God's presence, now we find Adam, he's hiding. He's trying to hide from the omnipresent God. And, and Adam, man, no longer wants to be with God, but now the holy God can no longer be in the presence of sinful man. And so Adam and Eve, they're cast out of the garden, which really functions as the first temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. They're cast out of the garden, and God's presence is removed from them. See, the first step in beginning to pursue the presence of God is realizing what not pursuing him is costing you. Now, I want to be clear here. It does not cost you your salvation. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. The saving presence of God will never depart from you. Once you're saved, you are always saved. But sin, it does cost us our nearness to God. So when David came to God in true repentance over his sin with Bathsheba, he writes in Psalm 51, the thing that he wanted most, he says, cast me not away from your presence. This was the greatest pain that Jesus endured when he was on the cross. We often think that his pain was great because it was 
physical pain, and it was indeed physical pain, but the greatest pain he endured was the spiritual pain. When he cried out to his father, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that moment, Jesus felt what it was like to be abandoned by God. And the punishment of sin was being laid upon his shoulders. And the weight of feeling the presence of God, feeling like it was departing from him, he bore it. Now the remainder of verse 2 shows us that Israel's unfaithfulness to God was that they didn't believe it was the right time to build the temple. And so verse 2 again, it says, these people say the time has not yet come. And so the issue that kept Israel from building the temple was an issue of timing. It wasn't that Israel didn't think that the temple was necessary. They understood that at some point they needed the temple, but the issue was they just didn't believe it was the right thing right now. And God's issue with the people is this. The presence of God among his people is not a someday priority. It's not a someday priority. It's a right now priority. Now, we all understand someday priorities and right now priorities. There are someday priorities that we almost all mutually share. For instance, like this. Someday, I'm going to have a clean garage. Or how about this one? Someday, I'm going to start that exercise program. Or as we're sitting in front of a, like, like I was last night, in front of a giant plate of smoked meat and fries and really unhealthy food, we say, someday, I'm going to start that diet. See, it's a someday priority. Someday, we're going to get to it. We believe these things are good things. Just in this moment, right now, we don't believe that they're good enough priorities to pursue. They're someday priorities. Now, how much worse is it when the people of God relegate God's priorities to someday priorities? When the people of God say, someday, I'll get to that thing that you want me to do, God. The people of God had done this by not rebuilding the temple. Now we do this functionally when we put off the disciplines of grace. Take, for example, prayer. A failure to pray is to believe that you don't need God for the thing that you would have prayed for. And so we'll put off prayer thinking that uh, that's a someday priority. Someday I can pray about that thing, but right now it's more productive for me to do this. Right now, it's more productive for me to use my time elsewhere. What we have said is that there's more pressing priorities than asking God for his favor in our life, than pursuing the presence of the Lord. It's the same thing we do when we hit the snooze button instead of sitting in front of God's word. We say, right now, in this moment, nine minutes of sleep is more important to me than sitting in front of God's word and hearing his voice. We take God's priorities and we make them someday priorities. See, the first thing you need to do if you want to pursue the presence of the Lord is realize that it's time. Second thing you need to do is consider what needs to be changed. Consider what needs to be changed. And so in verses 3 to 11, Haggai gets more specific about exactly what's happening. It's not just that the pursuit of God's presence is a someday priority. It's that other priorities are coming first. And this needs to change. So again, in verse 3, Haggai reminds them that this is God speaking. He says in verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Haggai will do this again and again and again. He'll bring up that this isn't his voice. This is God showing us a picture of what needs to change in our life. And if God is calling if he's showing us what needs to be changed in love, then it makes sense for us to change our way. If we're confronted in any way that our life isn't like God's, then we need to change what needs to be changed. Now notice that twice in verse 5 and 7, Haggai calls God's people. He says, consider your ways. He says in verse 5, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In verse 7, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. See, they're no longer pursuing the presence of God. And our question is, why? Why are they no longer pursuing the presence of God? Why is God speaking about these people like they're no longer his children? And the answer is this, they're taking actions 
in their life that are causing it to be this way. They're pursuing things in their life that are causing them to run away from the presence of God. Instead of pursuing the things in their life that could draw them closer to the presence of God. Instead of spending time building the temple, they're spending time building their own houses. And there are priorities in their life, there are actions in their life, there are habits in their life, there are attitudes in their life that need to change. And so God calls them, just as he calls us this morning, to consider their ways to take a look at their life. What is drawing you away from the presence of the Lord? And so in verse 4, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, the house of, well, the house of God lies in ruins. Now this question, it cuts to the heart of the matter. Well, the people think it's not time to build the Lord's house. They certainly have time to build their own house. And Haggai very specifically uses the same word, house. He uses that same word for the temple of God as he does for the people's own personal dwellings so that he can compare. You don't think it's time to build the house of the Lord, but you do think it's time to build your own houses. Now, the verse, it shows us that these people were building their houses in lavish ways. Like, it wasn't like just they're building some shoddy tent that they can kind of sleep under to to stay away from the rain. It says they were using cedar paneling. This was the type of material that we only read in the Bible being, up to this point, being used in King Solomon's temple. This was the type of material that was uh, lavish. It begs us to ask the question, the first of a few questions we want to ask as we consider our ways. And the question is this, have we pursued comfort over calling? Have I chosen comfort over calling? See, God had called his people to build his house. And to do so was proof that they were pursuing his presence. But what was it that caused the people of God to put pursuing God's calling to build his house on the back burner? It was the comfort of their wood-paneled homes. See, building a temple, we read and learned from Isaiah 4, meant persecution. It meant hard work. But to stop meant that they could live in relative peace, in relative comfort, that they could build up their own homes. I want you to notice how God didn't let them make any excuses for their disobedience. Their circumstance didn't let them off the hook of God's calling. So though, though they faced persecution, they were still expected to pursue God's calling. But this is the issue of our sinful hearts. When God's calling gets tough, we can be tempted to put it off for easier things. Thinking that because God called us to a specific action, because God called us in a specific way to do something, if it gets hard, maybe I'll just stop. Maybe I'll do it some other day. We know God says one thing, but fear causes us to put that on the back burner and pursue another thing instead. We take up comfort instead of calling. One of the ways that we often pursue comfort in the midst of difficult circumstances in our finances. See, if I know this month that things are going to be tight financially, I might be more comfortable reserving giving to the Lord's work, reserving having a kingdom-first mentality. I might be more comfortable reserving giving to the Lord's work until I know that things will be right for sure. I might say, I, I know that giving to the Lord's work, I know it's a good thing, I know God calls me to do that, but, but I, I, I'm just going to wait until I'm comfortable. And maybe next month, things will be a little more secure financially, and I'll have a bit more of a balanced budget, but, but for now, I'm just going to hold off on what God calls me to do and make sure that I'm okay first. See, God's order, no matter what circumstances, always that we be kingdom first that we pursue his calling in our life first, whether it's in our giving, whether it's in the way that we use our time, whether it's in the way that we serve, or anything else he says that we are to do. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. I wonder this morning if there are areas in our life where we're making sure that we're okay before pursuing God's calling. See, God says it's the other way around. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you. 
See, we're to pursue comfort over calling. Now, a second thing that verse 6 shows us needs to change is this, that that these people, they had been putting gain before God. And so look at what verse 6 says. It says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. See, the problem for the people of Haggai that Haggai was addressing was not hardship. It wasn't that they didn't have enough, so they had to work a ton just to get the bare necessities. The problem was that they kept accumulating more and more stuff, more food, more water, more clothes, more money, but it never satisfied. They had it all, but it was never enough. And so their hunger for more just increased and increased. And while none went hungry, none went thirsty, none went naked, none went without income, all of them went without the good life. All of them were pursuing satisfaction. All of them were pursuing joy, but none of them could find it. Nothing would satisfy. Now, I feel the need to speak specifically to men here because I see something. It's not just in our church, but I see something in the life of a lot of men where they're doing just this. They're putting gain before God. And what I see is a lot of capable men who prove their leadership, who prove uh, that they are able to uh, live a productive life, able to do things meaningful, but they prove it in the workplace. And you look at their life in the workplace and they're getting promoted and they're working so hard at their job. But then you look at their life in the church, you look at their life in their family and they're putting all these things before the Lord. How is that safe? Did you guys see that? I need like an instant replay. We got it on video, we can slow-mo. Sorry, I, I gotta point that out because I get too distracted by squirrels. Men. I had to say it because I'm talking to men and they're all distracted by it too. Men. We put these things before the Lord. And I see a bunch of men who are capable in the secular world, but not taking up their calling in God's world. Men who are apathetic in their homes. Men who struggle to consistently serve the church. Men who lack spiritual discipline. I wonder if now God might be calling you to see the folly of your ways that you've been pursuing gain before God, that you've had it completely backwards, that the treasure that you are working so hard in your job to amass is so temporary, it's so fleeting, and God, God is calling you to secure for yourself an eternal treasure by pursuing him. See, when you put aside the pursuit of gain, you pick up the pursuit of God. Now, in verses 7 to 11, God brings up one last concern, one last thing that might need to change. It's that they've been pursuing exertion before expectation. They've been exerting themselves with as much energy as they can before expecting that God will abundantly bless them. See, God's presence is found for those who depend on him. And so verse 8 says that they would depend on him by going to the hills where he would provide for them the resources they needed to build the temple. Look what it says in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. See, there's things that you're doing, but you need to stop them and you need to start doing the things that are pursuing my presence. And so he says, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified by it, says the Lord. See, this was the life that God takes pleasure in. This is the life that God is glorified in. Instead, they tried hard to provide what God could only provide. And so Haggai, he uses poetic language now to push the foolishness of this home. Look what he says in verses 9 to 11. He says, you looked for much. Behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. 
See, they were working hard for a blessing. They were putting all, a lot of energy in securing for themselves their own riches and their own reward. But God, all the time, every time they exerted themselves to work for their own blessing, God pulled it away. It says, whatever you brought home, I blew it away. The skies, they could have provided water. God could have poured out rain abundantly, but instead they didn't. God's hand sovereignly withheld any blessing that they could achieve from their own efforts. Their plans were frustrated. Their efforts were useless. And God had left them without any sense of success in their own exertion. Why? Because all along as they were working so hard to build a name for themselves, to amass things for themselves, God was sovereignly drawing everything that they were pursuing away from their grasp. God was withholding it. And at first this seems cruel of God, but then we discover that it can actually be one of the greatest acts of God's love to not give you what you are pursuing. One of the most loving things that God can do is make your effort to find satisfaction outside of him seem so futile and impossible. And so he'll make the path away from him hard, and he'll make the path to him easy. That's why he says in James 4, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Now, some of us, we want to put in like our own translative notes in there, where it's, it's like, I know it says draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you, but I, what it really says, like if you read between the lines, what James is saying is draw near to me, and get your life perfectly in order, and make sure your home is perfectly clean, and then I'll draw near to you. And we kind of insert our own like legalistic notes, but, but what James says is simple. If you draw near to the Lord, the Lord draws near to you. See, God makes returning to him simple, but he will remove all satisfaction from your earthly pursuits so that you can reach the end of your wits and realize you need to return to him. This is the love of the Father. In fact, the judgment of the Father is often to give the unrighteous over to their ways. So I want you to read in Romans 1.18 that Paul says, it's going to be on the screen here, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now later in Romans chapter 1, Paul's going to show us how his wrath is poured out on these men on these ungodly people. Look what he says in Romans 1, 24 to 25. This is the way that God judges these people. Therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what God was doing for these people? What God was doing was holding them back, but his judgment on these people was to give them up. And I wonder right now if there are some in this room who maybe you're in that moment that you've been pursuing satisfaction outside of God and you feel like you're pushing your head against a brick wall because no matter what you get, it's never enough. You keep pushing harder and harder. Maybe if I just get this one more thing, maybe if I just have this one more experience, then I can finally have joy. But there's the loving God pulling any sense of satisfaction you can have in the world away. Holding you back so that you, in this very moment, he could speak to you through his word and show you the foolishness of your way and then call you to him. See, he calls you to him this morning. And he has provided all that you need to have eternal life with him. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. He has paid the penalty that needed to be paid for your sin. And all you need to do is place your faith in the sacrifice of his son. And in that moment, your sins are washed away. Your heart is renewed and transformed. So that a heart that longed for the things of the world, it now longs for the things of God. It longs to dwell in the presence of the Lord. This is what God is so willing to do for you this morning. Now instead of exerting ourselves as we live for the Lord, instead of putting in our own effort to secure our own blessing, God is present with those who are expectant. 
This is why our prayer life can be so bland, because we get this backwards. See, prayer in its nature, it's a posture of expectation. It's asking God to move in power. It's believing that God is sovereign over the whole universe so that when I pray, when I make requests of him, he's able to answer them. And so let me ask you, if you want something done, how do you go about doing it? Do you stop first and pray? See, often we think that prayer is the opposite of productivity. Often we think that prayer is the opposite of doing, when really it's one of the most important things that we can do. What's more effective, praying and asking God to accomplish things in your life or to forego pray, praying and exert yourself to get what you want? See, many of our prayer lives reveal that we're living a life of exertion rather than a life of expectation. So then, if God's near to the dependent and near to the expectant, then consider what areas of your life you are exerting yourself to get what God is willing to give you, to get what God wants to give you when you turn to him in dependency and pray to him. It's very possible for us to kind of have two buckets in our life. And in these buckets, we put all the things that we do, all the things that uh, happen in our life, we put in these buckets. And the one bucket is the bucket of exertion. And we believe that there are certain things that they just belong in this bucket. Like, it's not that God doesn't care about them, but he doesn't want me to pray about them. So we put things into the bucket of exertion. But there's also this bucket over here. It's a bucket of expectation. And in this bucket, there's a lot less things but there are a few things that we'll go to God for prayer in. In the bucket of expectation, we put things like if I get sick or if someone in my family gets sick, well, then I got to pray because I can't do anything about that. I can do all all the things about the stuff in this bucket, but I can't do anything about someone getting sick, so I got to pray. Or something happens in our job where maybe we're about to lose our job and we realize there's nothing I can do, so we put it in the bucket of expectancy and we say, God, you got to do it. If something's going to happen here, you got to do it. This is going in the bucket of expectancy. Now, what God wants us to do is take everything out of that bucket of exertion and pour it into the bucket of expectancy and to say this, look to me for every good thing. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, one of the uh, hardest things to pray in the Lord's Prayer is, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Because when we pray it, we're in front of our daily bread already. And we open our fridge and there's like a lot of daily bread. Daily bread's going stale. We're pouring it in the green bin. There's a lot of food. God has already provided. So what we do is we put food into the bucket of exertion. I can get this on my own. I don't need to pray it. Then we come to that prayer, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need. And it seems funny because we've already exerted ourselves to do it. God wants us expectant. Well, recently, Amber and I had begun to kind of realize this cynical attitude we had about prayer, and it was causing us to put a lot of things in the exertion bucket and only a few things in the expectation bucket, and God was revealing this in in us, so it prompted a season of increased prayer, and so I I talked earlier about three weeks ago, we had our second daughter, and during Amber's labor, we were just, it, it was really sweet. I'll always look back on it as a really sweet time because we were pausing at so many moments just to pray together and to lift just every small thing we could think of. We were just lifting up to the Lord. At one time, at one point, During the labor, we were at home, and the contractions, they were getting rough. And I know that there's no way for me to talk about labor that will satisfy any woman who's been through it here, so just forgive me now. But they were getting rough, and they were getting painful, but they were also getting further and further apart. So we were getting kind of discouraged because it was getting so hard, and we're still home, and it's like, man, like this is going to take so long. And so we did what God was convicting us to do. We prayed. And we prayed that God would relieve Amber of some of the pain, but specifically we prayed that the labor would go faster and that Amber would be relieved of the pain that she's experiencing in this labor. Now, we knew God cared. We knew he was willing to bless us when we embraced a position of expectancy. Now, I was beginning to suspect that there's power in expectant prayer when 10 minutes later I was on the phone with 911 and they're walking me through how to deliver the baby on our bed. And all the colors left my face. And I'm realizing, like, when you pray expectantly, you also got to add a few, like, hey, don't, don't do it too fast, God. 
And then I knew the power of expectant prayer when 20 minutes after that, I rushed into the hospital room and had missed the birth of my second daughter by a minute. Now, a lot of people, they, they go, oh, that's so sad, but I think it's really good. It's a lot better than delivering your baby on your bed at home. So I am grateful and praising the Lord that he answers prayer. Third thing we need to do if we want to pursue the presence of the Lord is embrace a renewed obedience. After verse 11, there's a drastic change. It's as though Haggai, he records a completely new people. And the difference we see in them is that there's a renewed obedience. So look at what happens in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. See, the remnant, the difference was the remnant began to obey the voice of the Lord. Once the people had seen what needed to change, they made the necessary change. They were ready to obey. They had seen how God's word contradicted their way of life, and they made the necessary changes in their life so that they could obey God's word and live his way. So if we desire God's felt presence in our life, then there's no other way to it than to pursue God in obedience. God's presence is with those whose heart is waiting on him, whose ears are waiting to hear his voice, showing him them how to live. This is why you read all through the Psalms about Psalms who just, psalmists who just love God's word and they want to hear God's law and change their life according to it. So the psalmist says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Let me ask you, walking in this morning, let's just take a moment to reflect on a few minutes ago. How ready were you to hear God's word? See, often we kind of just stroll in here and, you know, it's just another Sunday morning. But how willing were you to be confronted in the way that you're living? See, some of the most mature Christians I know, some of the uh, Christians that are closest to God, they seem like something's a little broken up here because they're always so ready to receive conviction from the Lord. Where most, like me, like most of the time, it's like, oh man, I don't want to be convicted. That's going to be hard. Like, don't preach that hard message. But the, the ones who want to be near, they say, bring it on. Bring it on. I want the conviction. I want any sin that's in my life hidden or revealed. I want it to be out in the open because, God, I want to be near you. I don't want anything in my life that tears me away from the presence of the Lord. So God, convict me of my sin because I know the power of forgiveness that's in the cross. And so they constantly sit in front of God's word longing to be shown how the word contradicts their way. I wonder if that's where we're at this morning. Now what happens once the word brings about renewed obedience? The text shows us, once the word brings out renewed obedience, two things specifically happen. First, there's a renewed presence of the Lord. When the people of God repent of their way, they change their, their way, they turn to the Lord with a renewed obedience, the presence of the Lord returns. In verse two, we remember the Lord showing the people the gravity of their sin by addressing them as these people. But look at what happens in verse 12. It says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. Now this relationship, it's restored. No longer are they pursuing these worldly things. Now they're pursuing the presence of the Lord. Obedience had restored their relationship with God. He was their Lord. And so he was treated like God. The text says they feared the Lord. This was a fear of the Lord that set their priorities straight. And it wasn't because they were scared of God. It wasn't because they were worried about God. It was because they had finally begun to have reverence for the God who was showing them how they needed to live. Now sin had destroyed their relationship. Obedience had renewed it. Their relationship was made right with God, but God's relationship with them was also restored. So look at what it says in verse 13. It says, Then the the Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and listen to this message, I am with you, declares the Lord. See, where God's presence had once departed because they weren't rebuilding the house of the Lord, God now says to the people, I am with you. God's presence is restored to his people. 
Now, practically, I want you to notice that they hadn't even built the temple yet. They had begun, but they hadn't finished any work. And this is instructive for us because many of us, we have like these inner legalists in us. And we might hear a message like this about how you need to pursue the Lord. And this inner legalist, it it comes alive and it starts saying, okay, you're going to have to start waking up an hour earlier. You're going to have to start doing more. You're going to have to start being closer to me. You're going to have to start, you know, up the reading plan. A year is not enough. It's going to have to be six months now. You're going to have to pray twice the time. You're going to have to start serving in a new way. We start adding to this list, thinking that if we just do the right things, if we start living the right way, then God's going to be present with us. We think that the presence of God is with those who do enough to achieve it. That's not what this text shows us. This text shows us that God is present with those who pursue him. See, this is the amazing truth that James, we read earlier, but we need to bring it up again. God is waiting to draw near to those who are longing to draw near to him. It's not so much about what you do or how much you do it as much as it is about why you do it. Do you long for the presence of the Lord? Do you long to dwell in the house of the Lord? Do you desire to be in his presence? It's not checkmark reading. It's opening up God's word, desiring to be present with your father. See, it changes the way you do everything. It changes the way you fellowship. It changes the way that you're a part of your small group. It's no longer, man, I'm too tired. I don't want to go. I, I need to sleep. I need to go to bed early tonight so I can go to work tomorrow morning. Now small groups are about, I want to be with God's people. I want to be renewed with God's people because I want to live a life that's close to his presence. I want them to speak conviction into my life. I want them to speak encouragement in my life. I want to be close to the Lord. I know this group of people, they care about me so much that they're willing to bring me there. See, renewed obedience restores God's presence to us, but verse 14 shows us it does more than that. It also restores God's power to his people. So renewed obedience comes along with renewed power. So look what it says in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of of the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the, of the month, in the sixth day, in the second year of Darius the king. See, what the Lord does is he quickens the spirits of the people so that now they want to do the work that he had called them to do. Their spirits were quickened to do what he was calling them to do. And so God doesn't just give them an instruction manual. God doesn't give them five steps to get your heart in a place to make it ready to work for God. He doesn't hand books out on the latest productivity book, uh, tips and hacks. He doesn't hand books out on self-help, how you can get your, your uh, character to a place where you're ready to help God. Instead, he does the work that each of us needs. He changes their hearts. He stirs up their spirits. God stirs up the heart of the people so that now their inner desire is to do the work that they should have been doing all along to build the temple. He stirs up the hearts of the people so that now what they long to do with renewed power is to build the temple. Now what's the takeaway for us here? The takeaway is that if we truly long to pursue the presence of the Lord, we desperately need the Lord to do a work that is so beyond us. We need him to change our heart. We need him to take out the desires that are in our heart for other things and replace them with good and godly desires. Desires to pursue his presence. See, for 15 years, the people of God had pursued their own way, but now God does a work of transformation in their hearts. Their spirits are quickened. They're ready to do what the Lord has called them to do. And if we long to pursue God's presence, we need the same help. We need the same quickening. And this is the beauty of it, is that God longs to do it in us. He longs to change and transform our hearts and to give us desires that are for him and for his presence. And you ask, well, how do you know? And I know because 2,000 years ago, another prophet's prophecy was fulfilled. It was the prophet Isaiah, and he said this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel, it means God with us. See, God's desire 
to be present with his people. So what he does is he sends his son to be with his people. And, and the son of God, Jesus Christ, he's the word of God incarnate. The word of God takes on flesh to be with his people. And then the word of God dies so that access to the father can be possible. And his blood, it washes away the sin of this people so that they can come into the presence of a holy God. See, now through Christ, we have access to the Father. Not only that, we have the promise of his presence so that one of the last things that Jesus says to a group of disciples who have done a lot of failing in their time, he says this, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. See, God longs to do this work in your heart. In Psalm 27, 8, David writes, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. This morning, we've heard God's word calling us to seek his face, but the question for us is this. It's not simply enough to hear it. Will you seek his face? Will you go from here, having heard God call you to seek his face, will you go seeking him? Will you be like the exiles who, once hearing God's voice, responded with a renewed obedience? Let me ask you What's your response to God telling you it's time to pursue his presence? Like David, is it your response to make your commitment, I will seek your face? If it is, let's respond together. Yes, Lord, I will. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, and God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the voice of God that we hear through Scripture. Lord, we thank you that when we are living lives that are so far from you, Lord, you pause us. Lord, you stop us in our tracks. You have a word for us. And Lord, you speak to us that it's time. It's time to pursue your presence. Lord, you've made every way for us to do it. God, you've given us Jesus Christ that our sins can be washed away. Lord, that we can have forgiveness in him. That we can dwell in the presence of a holy God. And even now that we can offer worship up to him as those who have been forgiven of pursuing the things that aren't your presence. Of pursuing the things that instead of drawing us closer to you, they draw us farther from you. And so God, we lift up this worship knowing, Lord, that you are the one who changes hearts. And Lord, thanking you that you have changed our heart to desire your presence, God. Lord, we pray this in the name of your son. Amen.